0: Lin is here. She is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the co-author with Josh Chin of Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. It is an incisive and remarkable book, and I'm eager to talk with her about it. One of the book's main subjects is the Chinese Communist Party's ongoing attempt to use a blend of digital, psychological, and physical brutality to oppress the Muslim Uyghurs in the western province of Xinjiang. As the book says, the Communist Party's offensive in Xinjiang ranks among the most unsettling political developments of the 21st century. Chinese leaders have revived totalitarian techniques of the past and blended them with futuristic technologies in an effort not to eradicate a religious minority, but to re-engineer it. The book also discusses the CCP's efforts to use pervasive surveillance to promote prosperity, a campaign it's waging, for example, in Eastern smart cities, where AI is easing traffic and assisting law enforcement. The party is seeking to use powerful cameras, facial recognition technology, online data harvesting, and AI-powered information analysis platforms to render the citizenry hyper-legible. But it is doing this not only to shore up its direct control, but also to create convenience and efficiency. The CCP is attempting, in short, to create a vast system of technological carrots and, sometimes quite disturbing, sticks. As the book puts it, the party thinks it has the blueprint for the rival system to liberal democracy it has long dreamed of building. By mining insight from surveillance data, it believes it can predict what people want without having to give them a vote or a voice. By solving social problems before they occur and quashing dissent before it spills out onto the streets, it believes it can strangle opposition in the crib. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthol. Lisa, it is so good to have you on. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So the book starts and ends with the story of Tahir Hamut and his family. Tahir is a Uyghur poet and filmmaker who, against the odds, managed to get his family out of Xinjiang after a lot of China's oppressive surveillance and control measures had already been imposed. And it's a compelling story, and it's important uh, for, among other reasons, the fact that Tahir, unlike many other Uyghur expats, has firsthand experience of what has happened in Xinjiang, Um, as you note in the book, some of the measures are so extreme there that for a time people doubted, you know, thought basically reports were fake news. So I think the place to begin is with Tahir and his story. Could you tell us about what he experienced and how he and his family came to form such an integral part of your book?
1: Tahir was one of the first Uyghurs outside of China that we interviewed when we were first beginning to report on the subject. And there are a lot of reasons why he is special. You know, he's um, widely regarded in the Uyghur community for being uh, one of the greatest living poets uh, writing in Uyghur. And he's seen as an intellectual as well. But the reason why, you know, he was really critical for our book is because he was one of the very few Uyghurs that had managed to escape the Chinese surveillance state in Xinjiang just as surveillance was beginning to ramp up and go into full swing. And since then, not many Uyghurs have been able to leave Xinjiang as successfully as Tahir and just talk about that story. So to give you some background on Tahir, you know, Tahir, he has a family, his wife and two children, they now live in Virginia. He went to college in Beijing, grew up in Urumuchi and Xinjiang, and has lived there since until uh, uh, till about 2017, when he managed to get out. Much of what he experienced in Xinjiang is what the regular Uyghur person experienced in Xinjiang. And that's why being able to talk to Tahir and then seeing the documents and the videos that he found, that was really, really important to us. So to give you some context on what life was like in Xinjiang when Tahir was there, and we start off the book with this scene as well of Tahir being in a police station. And he and his wife are there basically because the police had called them down and in doing so, asked them to, for permission to collect DNA, such as, you know, your face print, your blood, your voice prints, and even your iris prints. So, so how they collected, like, your voice would be. They got Tahir to sit down and read a passage from a newspaper that day. That was how they were collecting it, voice prints. And his facial prints were taken as well in a 3D direction. So it's all very creepy stuff. But it gets even creepier when you realize that it isn't just Tahir and his wife that they're collecting these prints for. It's almost every other Uyghur in Xinjiang that has, that has to have its, their DNA and their voice print and their face print taken. Um, and, and you might ask sometimes, like why would the police be taking their face prints or their voice prints? And if you really think about it, the digital surveillance was being coupled with human surveillance. So the facial recognition comes in very handy because in Xinjiang, police in in the space of four months in 2016 had built 5,000 of these mobile police stations across the region where they could easily just detain you if they felt you were a person of interest, if the cameras or like the facial recognition devices at those gantries had flagged you out as someone possibly wanted or a fugitive. In Xinjiang at that point, you know, and this was like early 2017, late 2016, a big ramp up of this sort of digital and human surveillance. I remember one, one really particularly creepy example where if you were in Xinjiang and you bought a knife, they would etch your ID details onto that knife. Because the thinking was if you were a terrorist and you had used that knife or for crime or or terrorism in future, then it would be easy for the police to trace it back to you. Uh, So that was a sort of like creepy situation in Xinjiang, ongoing at that point. Uh, The the last thing I would probably mention about the surveillance in Xinjiang was, it wasn't just all digital, and the police stations even, it it was human surveillance too. Uh, They had passed around a census for every Uyghur Muslim to fill in, asking about how many times they visited a mosque in a week, for example. Did you consume, do you consume alcohol? Because in general, Muslims, especially the very religious ones don't. Or how is your knowledge of the Quran? Do you have a Quran at home? Or even do you have a passport at home? Because with a passport, you could easily travel to Turkey and other Muslim countries and kind of get Muslim teaching there. So this census was being passed around and the results were digitized and used to form a picture of every single Uyghur And used to assess if they were a national security risk or not. And at that point, if you were considered a national security risk, you'd be thrown into what China at that time called re-education camps. But in reality, they're huge internment camps that, you know, day and night, they try and hammer your religious habits out of you. They force feed you with like Chinese Communist Party propaganda. And then force you to learn um, the party's like, mantras and force you to learn Mandarin as well. So this was a situation that Xinjiang was in uh, in 2017, 2018.
0: Yeah, the the details of your book are are very rich. It's so well reported. We have some culture wars is the term for it, right, in the United States. And we get into these spats. And it was a refreshing reminder for me, at least, to read a book about, you know, what real oppression looks like. And it, it really, it was the little details, you know, the notion that there could be a questionnaire that is explicitly asking about your religious beliefs and habits and certainly made me thankful for the First Amendment reading that. And the re-education camps, actually the the one that really stuck out to me for some reason, there were worse things mentioned that happened. You know, these people who spend their days afraid to talk to each other or who get their head shaven or get or get put in a tiger chair and interrogated. But it was the beds uh you guys mentioned that were found outside of a camp that had stickers on them that said uh something like, admit your mistakes, repent, and the totalitarianness of even when you get up and go to bed in the morning, you have that propaganda being put in your face. So it was. Refreshing is a sad word to put it that way because so many there's so much suffer, suffering, but helpful for me in in remembering the freedoms that we have over here. I'm glad I have that out of the way and have said that because I like I I'm glad your book book ends with um, the oppressive measures and the dystopian aspect. But technology is a tool; it can be used for good, it can be used for bad. Surveillance cameras, software, AI software, and all this stuff it can be used to, the way I put it, make citizens hyper legible and thereby oppressed. But there are also ways it's being used to make life more convenient in China. And could you help you tell us about a few of those positive use cases?
1: Sure. And actually, Corbin, before we go into the positive side of things, I should probably, you know, it just suddenly hit me that I should probably mention this as well. Like, I remember when we were, researching the topic, uh, there were a cache of documents that researchers in Europe had stumbled across uh, that essentially had been uh, leaked from the police department and authorities in Xinjiang. And it really detailed out like what sort of persons were sent to these re-education camps. Um, Just just because I don't want your audience to assume that everyone who was sent to the re-education camp was a budding terrorist. Um, the, the bar was so low that you would see entries such as this person got married in like a typical Muslim tradition mm-hmm. in a certain region in Xinjiang, and then they got sent to a camp. Or so-and-so might have owned a Quran 10 years ago and you know went to the mosque for maybe a month of religious studies. And this obviously happened 10 years ago, but it didn't matter to Chinese authorities at that point. This person was also sent to a re-education camp. So I I, I don't want listeners to imagine that Xinjiang was a place full of terrorists. On the contrary, I think in Xinjiang, the Uyghur people and the Han Chinese definitely did have their clashes. But in Xinjiang, the Uyghur people were not anti-communist party the way that uh, we had talked about earlier and the way that the party had thought about.
0: Your, yeah, your book does an excellent job of basically giving the the train of events and how a few isolated incidents led to the internment of, we're talking, what, like 20% of the male population? I mean, it's more than a million people. Um, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, there are no fixed numbers, but, you know, the, some independent research uh, out of um, very clued in researchers in Europe have, have put the number at about a million at a certain point, all in re-education camps. And, and turning to, I guess, the positive uh, uses of surveillance in China, what we had hoped to do with the book was we had hoped to show how the same technology that could be abused in one region could actually be very beneficial to people like Han Chinese in a different region. So surveillance can mean very different things to you depending on who you are and you know where you're located. So Xinjiang, obviously, the surveillance was targeting minorities and they were in the western part of China. But if you had traveled or lived in the parts of China on the east coast, for example, Shanghai, where it's largely dominated by Han Chinese, you'd find that Chinese police were using surveillance in ways that the Chinese had actually felt were very beneficial to their lives. So the surveillance camera networks that were used in Xinjiang to identify Uyghurs or people whom they, they felt were national security risks, were now aimed at identifying, for example, known drug traffickers or fugitives on the run. You know, people, generally groups of people that you really wouldn't want to be walking on the street next to you. And, and, and it wasn't just that, you know, the, the cameras were also used, the data analytics on these cameras, not just, you know, the facial recognition, like image recognition was used to identify traffic accidents on the street so that you could send a first responder or you could send the traffic police to the scene down very quickly and then help clear up the accident so traffic would be smooth again. So there were all these other users in other parts of China where when you speak to the Chinese there, they say that you know having the data collected and having surveillance is, is an okay trade-off because they're seeing the positive upside of it. And I remember you know when we were in Hangzhou uh, we spoke to a guy whose mom had fallen into a river. They had, they lived on the outskirts of Hangzhou City, and Hangzhou City is probably about two hours from Shanghai, equally wealthy city as Shanghai, and you have companies like Alibaba headquartered there. His mom had fallen into the river, and thankfully for her, a neighbor had seen it and fished her out. But by the time she was out, she was still in need of medical help. So they sent an ambulance from the nearest hospital, and what the ambulance did was, on the way back from the scene where she had fallen to a river to the hospital, they had turned on some sort of um, technological system which allowed the cameras on the street to identify the license plate of that ambulance and turn the traffic lights green throughout her journey. So it essentially halved the time that this lady took to get to the hospital and to get treatment and to drain her lungs. And if you think about life and death situations like that, you really think that, okay, maybe in such a case, technology has its time and place.
0: Yeah. So the fact that your book goes through both, you know, you have these tools, they're tools, tools, one way or the other, and you give us both sides, it really distilled in my mind the big question, which is how we as Americans looking at China's use of tech You know, how do we differentiate between the tech uses of which we approve and maybe want to emulate? You know, it seems like not a bad idea to have the streetlights work in such a way that ambulances can get all greens uh, and get to the hospital faster. You know, and then the uses that we disapprove and want to denounce and discourage. And it's a spectrum. And I feel like there's just there were a lot of gray cases you, in fact, discuss, you know, how some of this technology is already being used in America, sort of with surveillance creep where people aren't really aware of it. So how do we assess the situation and make decisions for ourselves in light of the Chinese experience?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. And it's, it's hard for me to weigh in because with huge public policy decisions like these, there's usually a host of other factors to consider. Mm-hmm. I, so I would answer it this way. I, I would throw up two things for you to think about when you're assessing these technologies. I think what we're seeing in Xinjiang should resonate as a warning to anyone outside about how such technology can be used and abused, particularly if there are no safeguards to these technologies and no checks and balances. Such technologies have definitely been used in the European Union and in the UK to help law enforcement authorities really kind of solve crimes and reduce crime. But in such places, you do have much more checks and balances than China ever did. So I'll give you a good example. In in the UK, you have something called the Biometrics Commissioner. And this commissioner is essentially a quasi-government agency that's linked to the home department, the home ministry in the UK. And this agency, every year, they call out, they hold law enforcement and companies accountable for the use of facial recognition tech. And each year they make law enforcement agencies evaluate how useful the technology is, and if it's truly necessary to use it. So these are the types of things that you didn't have in China, which have which allowed the system to balloon to the, the huge monstrosity it, it eventually became in Xinjiang. Uh, and I think the other second aspect to consider when you're really thinking about using these technologies, and in particular such Chinese-made surveillance systems, is are they really effective? Very often, you know, and you've seen this in the past as well, many countries have procured such Chinese- made surveillance systems in the hope that it would solve you know some domestic security issue, be it high crime rates or um, perceived terrorism. When we were doing our research, we found no independent or no thorough study showing that these systems are truly very effective in this area. Instead, what we found was Whether or not these systems were effective or not, what they did was they did enhance any repressiveness uh, or authoritarian control of the government using it. So I would definitely caution against using such technologies without safeguards and also without a thorough analysis on whether these systems are truly as effective as they claim. An example of how uh, Chinese-made systems can actually increase repression without showing very tangible results, would be uh, the recent you know, recent Chinese exports to Iran, for example. So we've seen uh, Iranian authorities actually buy a lot of these Chinese-made systems, and the U.S. has just put one of the companies um, selling these systems on the entity list. You know, We've seen Iran authorities actually turn to facial recognition and AI cameras to quell riots or protests that have broken out as a result of their authoritarian rule. And this is one situation where I think you could see technologies that people deem as neutral actually furthering authoritarianism in certain countries. Uh, And most recently, I think you also saw the Iranian government and officials talking about using these systems to ensure that its citizens are abiding by Islamic law, including the dress code, which Mm -hmm. is using AI to make sure that women are wearing the hijab.
0: I think it's yeah. safe to say that pretty much no one thinks top-down planning as practiced by the Soviets and the Chinese in the 20th century is a recipe for success, not even the CCP, which promotes, you know, it's, it's always socialism with Chinese characteristics, which I, my understanding is that is a reference to the economic reforms of the 1980s. The issue, as you discuss, is whether this time is different. you know, do the advances in technology now make it so that you can do centralized control, um, maybe even have a system that is superior to liberal democracy at creating prosperity and answering people's needs and also squelching dissent. But you know, the CCP has uh, has a history. I mean, you mentioned, the communes during the Cultural Revolution where you know it's kind of got the play acting peasants and the grain that's, you know, been gathered from surrounding villages to make, you know, put up a Potemkin, a literal Potemkin village, basically. And every time we see reports from state media in China, we should probably take that have that same grain of salt. So so what's your view on this question? Regardless of whether you mentioned, like, say, Uganda, like a developing country, maybe it doesn't work that well, but will China get far in using technology to, if not achieve full legitimacy, as we see, as we would view it in a liberal democracy, but to, to have, you know, control?
1: So we characterize the system in China as being the CCP's alternative to liberal democracy. And the way we saw it was, you know, China doesn't have democratic institutions such as a free press. It doesn't have elections. And these are institutions that in the past have helped democracies react and read their populace a lot more nimbly than authoritarian governments and then hence staying in power for longer. So this feedback loop just isn't very well established in China. And what China really wanted to do with data and surveillance, you know, this is the carrot part um, of the surveillance that we talk about in our book, what they wanted to do was to mine enough data from the population to figure out what people were unhappy about and then fix the problem before it became like a huge issue and it sparked widespread protests. So that was what China was trying to do. It was trying to offer a different style of governance system to democracy, you know, giving the same sort of benefits but without also allowing, you know, democratic institutions like free press and elections. So that, that was the idea that the Chinese government has always had in mind uh, when it was resorting to data and surveillance. I think, though, what you're seeing now, and, and this I think is particularly, this is particularly in light of some of the widespread protests that happened in China last year, at the end of last year. So to refresh your memory, at the end of last year, uh, end November, early December, we saw protests break out across China because people were very unhappy with China's zero COVID rule, which essentially is a rule that uses widespread and abrupt uh, city lockdowns to try and quell the spread of COVID. This this method had actually led to a lot of unhappiness because people were unable to get to work and the economy was tanking. And more importantly, in some places, you couldn't even get food. So it led to a lot of um, unhappiness and eventually resulted in these protests breaking out.
0: Well, my question would be, we saw some protests, but they petered out. Is is it likely that the CCP, through surveillance, you know, we saw there was a Wall Street Journal article that was really good, maybe, maybe you wrote it, um, about the CCP tracking down protesters after the fact, you know, through your smartphone data, You are being contacted by the police a week after you, you know, held up a piece of white paper in protest. And that would suggest, you know, in microcosm, the sort of 1984 ability of a state to never be toppled because it can always strangle dissent in the crib. And what I'm curious about is your thoughts on how likely the CCP is to succeed in basically using technology to uh, sustain itself indefinitely.
1: So I think that what the protests saw was a surveillance can't prevent protests because when people are unhappy, they're unhappy. And when it came to the zero COVID policy, they were unhappy enough to take to the street. So all these like mining of data, trying to use data as, as the feedback loop to let them know that people were very displeased about it, all that didn't work. What's what worked with surveillance in that example was surveillance had helped to shorten the time of the protests. So it, it's actually scary to think about how the protests, which were the biggest protests ever, I think, since Tiananmen Square, it, it was scary to think about how the protests had died down in a matter of days. Anywhere around the world, protests just keep gain, gaining steam, more and more unhappy people coming out to the street. But in the context of China, you know, it was within a couple of days, the protests had died down. And the reason for that was because China deployed its huge surveillance network to figure out who is at the protests. Over the last three years of COVID, China has gotten really good at tracking each and every one of its citizens using their mobile phones. Because wherever you go in China right now or or, uh, wherever you went to China in the last three years, you would have to scan your mobile phone. Or your mobile phone would be tracked to make sure you weren't in a COVID hotspot and be a COVID risk. So they deployed the same sort of technology to figure out who was in the vicinity of the protest, and then using that information, went to these people, knocked on their doors and told them that they shouldn't be protesting that way, or there could be consequences. And some people have even been taken away. And all that because the Chinese government have been surveilling and tracking mobile phone data. So, you know, I, I think the protests have made me a lot more pessimistic about the use of surveillance in China, which actually brings me back to my initial initial point and what I wanted to say. I think China's become really good at the stick approach to surveillance. But when it comes to the carrot approach to surveillance, I still see a lot of trial and error and I'm not sure they're completely there yet.
0: Yeah, so your book wraps things up in early 2022. And so understandably, the depiction of China's COVID response is pretty positive. The tale at that point was basically that China got a handle on the virus while the United States was mired in chaos. And you actually had a line, this also, and what popped into my head when I read this was uh, the United States is just really shoddy is the word I'm coming into my head, withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, how poorly that was done, not to mention January 6th, all the things that are going on. You You wrote The rise of tech-driven authoritarianism has coincided with a moment of weakness, confusion, and paralysis among countries that are supposed to best embody the benefits of democratic government. And things are constantly in flux. They could turn around again. I'm not saying they couldn't. But at the moment, things here look a little bit better and things over there look a little more brittle between the zero COVID policy reversal and e- even just recently, the news reminding us of China's long term demographic uh, struggles that they're likely to hit. As you said, it's it's maybe made you more pessimistic that China, will, the CCP, I should say, will continue to cling to power, you know, technology. But has this turn of events surprised you? I mean... If you write the epilogue or the the new afterword to the book, uh, you know, is there stuff you have to say about um, n- new insights you've gained since the book was published? Other than that, you're more pessimistic, which I'm sorry to hear.
1: Yes, so so you're right. We completed and we set the manuscript uh, late 2021, very early 2022, and that was before you know the Omicron virus really took root uh, in China itself. And before the Omicron variant, you know, most people in China seemed re- really happy uh, with the surveillance state because whatever privacy, privacy sacrifices that the surveillance state had entailed, the system still prevented a large number of deaths. And, you know, that that brings us to the comparison with the U.S. on Chinese social media where someone posted about how many people had died in the U.S. versus how many people uh, at the end of end of um, 2020, early 2021, how many people in China have been affected by COVID and have passed. So for most of 2022, when uh, our book was being in print, things started to change, right? And Omnicrom moved too fast for the surveillance system to track. And what we saw then was the government turned the surveillance system, instead of targeting the virus, it turned the surveillance system to target its citizens. So using these like massive city lockdowns, they tried to control the Omicron variant. Uh, and the surveillance was now conducted using, for example, drones. You know, So drones would fly across your residential compound just to make sure that residents were indoors and they're not flouting like these lockdown rules. So the surveillance system that was originally targeting like the virus and trying to track it had been turned on ordinary Chinese people. And that's when you really just saw like the mood in China started to shift and people were getting very fed up with, you know, constantly being watched, constantly being locked down, constantly having their freedoms crimped. And I think what really was the icing on the cake was sometime uh, in June or July, in the summer of last year, we saw local police actually abuse the surveillance system that had been put in place to control the virus. So in China over the last three years, I mentioned earlier, but you would have your movements would be tracked by the state telecom company just to ascertain where you were in the last two weeks and if you were in a place where there had been a huge virus outbreak you had this thing called a health code and the health code would turn red this health code would be something you had to flash every time you took a subway every time you entered a mall every time you took a long distance train and if your health code was red you just couldn't do anything you had to be in a quarantine center for two weeks So what we saw in central China uh, in summer of last year was the abuse of this health code. There had been a bank run uh, of a local bank in Henan province. And because of this bank run, like a lot of the depositors had their money frozen and they were upset about it because they needed money, but they couldn't get the money out. The money had been frozen by authorities as investigations were ongoing. So they decided to go to that city, um, Zhengzhou, where it took place, Chenzhou in Henan province, to protest. And they protested outside government buildings and outside like the central bank. Because the local authorities were caught so off guard, the second time that they expected people to come down and protest, they turned everybody's health code red. They turned all the people whom they expected to be at the protest, they turned the health code red. That meant that these people could not take trains into the city. You know, even if they came into the city, they couldn't take the subway and they would be hauled off to a quarantine center and kept there for two weeks. So this incident resulted in a big uproar on social media in China. And, you know, it, that was also like a pivotal moment where people in China were thinking, hey, you know, the surveillance state, which has worked so well for us in the last two years in keeping down COVID could be just on a whim turned against us like that. So it was a, a rude awakening moment.
0: Yeah, you mentioned an uproar on, on social media. And, and one thing that I, as an outsider, feel like I have very little grasp of is how much information is available to the average Chinese citizen. Um, and for some reason, I think in particular of, of white collar workers, sort of in Eastern cities. The mere the image of me, you know, very online person, I guess maybe that's just my priors. In your book, you mentioned how how dazzling it was for one of Tahir's daughters to access the open internet in the West, which suggests it's a very closed system. Um, but then at another point, you mentioned pirated copies of the movie, The Truman Show, Making the Rounds, which would suggest that, you know, things get around. And yet another point, I was really curious about this. You know, you mentioned that a filmmaker could get his or her documentary shown in museums, but couldn't get it into theaters, which suggests a very patchwork system. Um, I just feel very on the outside looking in. Um, My hunch is that information has a way of sort of flowing through the cracks, even if government, you know, despite government controls. But that's sort of just, that is a hunch. Um, So I'm really curious about this, because certainly in my mind, I have a very firm distinction between the CCP uh, which I have plenty of negative things to, t- to say about and, you know, the Chinese people. Um, but if I were to talk to an average Chinese citizen and bring up the CCP's history, the the, the the things that are in my head that give me my negative connotations, you know, the Great Famine, forced collectivization, the Cultural Revolution, you know, squashing the democracy wall in the late 1970s. Like, are these things that people are aware of and, and how much... Discussion actually occurs, and and what is the state of the flow of information? I'm sorry, that's actually like four questions, but
1: yeah, so I can tackle it, uh, and I'll break it down to two. So the first thing you're talking about is Chinese history, right? The knowledge of Southern Chinese events that might not have turned out the way the CCP wanted it to, and then the second thing is internet freedoms and censorship. So I think Perfect. when it comes, yes, thank you. <laughs> When it comes to Chinese history, I I think it was shocking to me that when I moved over, uh, I would be speaking to a a girl who was probably less than 30. And if you ask her about Tiananmen Square, she had absolutely no idea what the Tiananmen Square crackdown was all about. And that was because in their textbooks, they don't learn about this. You know, Tiananmen Square is portrayed really differently in Chinese history textbooks. And I think the same would, um, would go for a lot of the other uh, Chinese events that you mentioned. I mean, there will be mentions about it, but it wouldn't be mentioned in the same way that it's known in the West, right? When you have academics really parsing through it and analyzing the true cost of these CCP programs uh, under Mao Zedong. So th- that's on the history f- side. I think you do see the with the older generation, they remember what's happened, but they don't talk so much about it. Or at least if they talk about it, they talk about it privately. And with the younger generation, there is a much lower awareness of these political events in the past. And when it comes to internet censorship, so I would describe it this way. When I, you know, when I used to live in China, I would always call the Chinese ecosystem, the internet ecosystem, the Splinter Net. You, you would have either two phones or you would have two different ecosystems in, in your in one phone. And one ecosystem would have. All the apps that people outside of China commonly use, right? Like Google, Twitter, Instagram, Uber. And in China, all these companies are either blocked or have been have pulled out. So in its place, you've seen the Chinese equivalents, which are often as good as the Western equivalents kind of rise. And then you have Didi providing ride-hailing services. You have Baidu and Tencent providing... Search. You have WeChat providing chat messaging. You have Weibo providing China's version of Twitter. So it was like living in two different internet ecosystems and two different, ultimately two different information spheres. Because the the issue with having Chinese companies run your country's social media and search functions, the issue with that is the Chinese Communist Party can easily ask them to take out anything that they deem as negative. So a lot of a lot of the news and the information you see on the Chinese web has been filtered and censored to a certain extent. So taking out anything that might prove to be a political risk or a national security risk for the party. Prior to covid, I didn't think living in that sort of environment was too terrible because a lot of Chinese were traveling overseas and when you're traveling overseas you get to witness firsthand Right, what's happening overseas and maybe through visiting museums, you can find out more about Chinese history or by engaging with people in America or Europe, you can find out more about cultures. There are different ways you can get your information about a certain subject. Uh, and back then, we also had these things called VPNs, virtual private networks. Which are technically illegal in China, but have not been clamped down to the extent that the Chinese government has clamped down on them in the last one year or so. So many Chinese, uh, if they were curious about what people were thinking about China, you know, outside of China, they could easily get a VPN, buy buy a VPN, and jump the Great Firewall and get access to websites like Google, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and read about China. Right now. After China's three years of isolation, I'm a lot less optimistic that the information has been flowing through the cracks, um, mainly because we've definitely seen many more crackdowns on VPNs Over, over the whole period of the zero COVID policy. The Chinese government has definitely cracked down on sales of these VPNs online, making it much more challenging for Chinese to get hold of them and then jump the great firewall. And if you, over the last three years, have not been able to travel and you're only exposed to state media and what state media tells you, that showed to me the power of the propaganda ministry in China because people are starting to, that's all they're reading, right? State media and then what you're seeing on social media is also censored and filtered. And you're only given what the Chinese Communist Party wants you to see. And ultimately that becomes your reality.
0: Wow. Um, as All of this should show. I mean, the book is absolutely engrossing surveillance state inside China's quest to launch a new era of social control. I recommend it to everyone. You do great work for the journal. And as you are reporting on these kinds of things going forward, I'm very curious what's on your mind and sort of what you're looking closely at these days and what we can expect from you uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, so actually what I've been looking closely at these days is, you know, the system of export controls. Um, Over the last couple of years, we've seen between the US and China, a rise in awareness of how you could use sanctions to punish China for human rights abuses. So for example, the entity list, which is a commerce department blacklist that prevents is supposed to prevent Chinese companies from getting hold of advanced U.S. technology. That used to be used for nuclear reasons, to prevent like, countries from developing nuclear weapons. In the last couple of years, under Trump and under Biden, has been used to hit out at companies over human rights abuses, or to limit like, advancement of the military uh, in, co- in countries that you know, might not have the same democratic systems as the U.S., so that's actually a really interesting topic to me. And I, I just recently wrote about the loopholes in the export sanctions regime in the U.S. by writing about how China's you know, premier nuclear research weapons institute still managing to get hold of sophisticated American technology, despite being on that entity list for 30 years. So, you know, these are some topics that are really interesting to me. Like, for example, what would be the next shoe to fall when it comes to U.S.-China export controls? And, you know, it's chips now, obviously, but how closely are they looking at biotechnology? You know, how closely are they looking to stymie China's development on quantum computing? These are topics that I see would be, you know, really on the radar for us next year, or rather this year.
0: Well, fantastic. Yeah, you have a great beat. And uh, it also makes me happy precisely because of that fact. I, I run into right there on the front page uh, pr- pretty often, actually. So congratulations on that. Um, Lisa Lin has joined us. Her book, I'm going to say it one more time, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, co-authored with Josh Chen. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, uh, please go give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. It helps us out. And while you go do that, I'll start getting ready for the next one. Thank you all. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C.
1: To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.